From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 9th. The Olympics are finally over. Later in the show, we will talk to our Tokyo bureau chief about what we learned about hosting Olympics in the time of COVID. I think it will be remembered for just the sheer weirdness because of the fact that it was held in the pandemic. But before that, there's a new climate report out today, and the U.N. Secretary General is calling it a, quote, code red for humanity. The report clearly shows that we are living the consequences already of climate change everywhere. So today, this international group of scientists organized by the U.N. released its first assessment of sort of where we are in climate science. What do we know about the state of the planet since before the Paris Agreement? Brady Dennis reports on climate science for The Post, and he's been covering this pretty dire assessment of how the climate is already changing because of human activity. We will experience further and concurrent and multiple changes that increase with every additional bit of warming. We should be prepared for that. You know, the report makes clear that, that we're sort of pushing the planet into an unprecedented state, was the word that the scientists use. The seas are rising, the oceans are getting more acidic, Glaciers are melting. You know, the world, as we have all seen, is growing hotter and hotter. And um, the scientists who put together this report say pretty bluntly that that's going to keep happening for some amount of time, no matter what we do. Uh, But how hot it gets and how bad the impacts get, you know, are somewhat still up to us and what we do in the years ahead. And in terms of the effects that climate change is already having on our environment, I mean, I think so many of us have noticed these moments of extreme weather that are really scary about heat waves and wildfires and floods. And so is it fair to connect those moments with the impact of climate change that is outlined in this report? Yeah, I mean, I think that's increasingly fair because if there's one takeaway that I had as a as a science reporter from this report, it's the level of certainty that scientists have now had over time. I mean, if you look back, if you're, uh, you know, a climate wonk like some of us and you've read many versions of those reports, one thing that stands out is, is sort of the language has changed, right? Things that used to be, you know, somewhat certain are now virtually certain, or they say... Uh, something that used to have low confidence has high confidence. And so in the language of scientists, um, I think what they're saying is we, there's no, no longer any doubt that a lot of these events are being caused, at least in part, by climate change. And, you know, I think in some way we've all kind of become, I don't know if immune is the word, but accustomed to hearing sort of awful things about about climate change. And there's some of that in here, you know, like carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere haven't been this high in two million years, or that the last four decades are are hotter than any of the decades that came before, going back to the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, I feel like we've all been bombarded by some of these facts for a long time now. But as one scientist put it to me, you know, what, what seems to be different now, increasingly different, is that you don't really, you know, you don't have to have a PhD, you don't need to be a climate scientist to see the changes that we're seeing. All you need to do is be a person who looks out your window. And this summer is a testament to that. Um, A lot of the fires and floods and heat waves that we've seen are increasingly fueled in part by climate change. So then what does this report mean for the future and for the responsibility of nations and leaders to take some kind of action? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it it lays out very clearly the choices that are in front of us. You know, this group, the IPCC, it's not a group of politicians. It's a group of scientists. And they say, here's here's the science. Here was what we know is happening. And here is what it would take to slow climate change. And in some ways, it really comes down to a math problem. You know, we have, this report says, somewhere less than 500 uh, gigatons of, of carbon dioxide that we can emit before we hit this critical threshold of 1.5 degrees of Celsius. And that is roughly about 10 years at our current pace. So if we want to slow that down, we need to emit less. And if we emit the same, then we're going to start to cross these temperature thresholds. And that's really at the very core of it. That's the choice. And so that's that's what leaders around the world face is whether we want to do the work of making transformational changes and how we power our homes and drive and, and commute and eat or if we want to deal with the impacts of, a, of an ever-worsening climate situation, you know, things that are going to get more extreme and hotter. And so I do think there is this moment this year in the fall. There's a major UN climate summit that leaders from around the world are going to attend, and they're facing a lot of pressure to come with new promises and new pledges. But, I mean, you say new promises and new pledges, and countries have already pledged to take action. They've already signed the Paris Agreement. And it seems like even adhering to those goals seems impossible, or at least that there's not enough of a political will to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's not the feel-good story of the year, right? And the Paris Agreement was, was a moment in 2015 when the world came together and said, we're going to fight climate change. We haven't even lived up to the promises we made then. The new promises that people are making, that's great, but there's still not enough to put us on a path that you know, scientists say are sustainable. And frankly, there's not a whole lot of precedent for the world, you know, banding together and doing something on this scale in the past. Not that we can't, but, you know, there's not a lot of precursors there, at least for something of this magnitude. And so I think it's a really open question about what we do and um, and really what we do soon, because it used to seem like a far-off problem. Um, and we used to look to the middle of the century or the end of the century. And increasingly, I think another message of this report is that climate change is a problem uh, of today and tomorrow. And if we want to deal with it, then we need to actually start dealing with it in the near term. So what about the role of the U.S. in this? And what is America doing on climate change? So as most folks probably know, we left the Paris Agreement under Donald Trump. We have rejoined it, uh, actually right away when President Biden took office. And this spring, President Biden promised to cut the U.S.'s emissions in at least in half by the end of this decade, by 2030. That got a lot of praise from around the world, and a lot of folks welcomed the U.S. back, understandably, to this effort. Now, actually pulling that off uh, and living up to that is is an entirely different matter. I mean, uh, it's not a choice that President Biden gets to do on his own. Congress gets a say in that. It takes a lot of money. It takes massive changes that that we have not seen yet. So piece by piece, we may get there. But at the moment, we are certainly not on the trajectory to hit those kind of cuts. Although this administration seems determined to uh, to at least get us on a better pathway for that. Well, you say that Congress has a role in that. And obviously right now the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a big part of what's happening in Congress. How much does that address climate change and the kinds of changes that need to happen to be anywhere near to these goals that the Biden administration is hoping to get to? 
Yeah, I think we've seen in recent months that President Biden is not going to get all he wants, right? Like he, you know, the shift to electric cars requires millions and millions of charging stations around the country and the shift uh, uh, away from coal power and other forms of power that, you know, emits uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, you know, you you can't do that solely through regulation, right? The market has a role in that, and um, Congress needs to bolster some industries that are that are still um, growing. And so, I think in our system, at least, that's what makes it tough. Uh, Congress gets a say in how much we invest in these things, and and the president has a say, but only to a certain extent. And then, if you try to regulate many of these changes, well, then the courts have a say. And so, moving quickly is is tough. And I think that's true in, in different parts of the world, some places more than others. You know, that's that's a challenge going forward. Are there any countries that are, in fact, doing enough on climate change? Enough is sort of a relative term and a moving target. There are some countries that are doing a lot and have done a lot. Part of the problem is that many of these countries are not the ones, A, that caused the problem in the first place, or B, that amount for a huge amount of the world's emissions. And so it's great if a tiny country becomes much more cleaner and adopts, you know, a very green profile, but if it doesn't really change the math of climate change a lot, we're still we're still facing those hurdles. Well, what what about the countries that have in fact contributed a ton to the emissions in the atmosphere? I mean, are 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 we seeing any large countries that do make up for a big part of of global emissions actually taking action that is significant? Yeah, I think one uh, group that's been among the most aggressive uh, is the European Union. They seem very serious about tackling climate and doing that on a scale that can hold us to some of these targets that are in the Paris Agreement. That's still going to be an uphill climb just because, uh, you know, time is running short. But I think there's still a lot of questions about massive emitting countries like China is the biggest emitter in the world. And and we don't know quite yet how it's going to um, take on this challenge. And other countries, Russia, Brazil, India, a lot of big question marks are still out there in this moment when the scientists at least are saying, you know, time is running short and some of these some of these goals that we've set are, are slipping away unless we do make big changes soon. I also wonder if there's something to be learned from how quickly things were able to change at the beginning of the pandemic when you saw travel patterns change so quickly. You saw people uh, really cutting down on their commutes. You saw industries coming to a stall. And though that brought a lot of hardship, I think it also brought a lot of opportunities, too. So I wonder if that's part of the conversation of what the future could look like. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I've been thinking a lot about the same, and in part because this report you know, the obvious question arises of tipping points. And the scientists in here talk about how, you know, if we keep just warming up the world, right, more and more, at some point there may be these really unexpected or or just overwhelming things that happen that we don't quite anticipate, things that are really irreversible and, and um, can just tip us into sort of irretrievable catastrophes, really, and impacts. But the flip side of that is that, you know, maybe there is a tipping point in the other direction where certain things catch on, whether it's electric cars or, you know, we no longer need fossil fuels to power our, our homes and businesses. And so, you know, maybe there's uh, tipping points that we're not seeing in the other direction. I mean, that's not to sugarcoat the reality that we certainly face a pretty steep climb to get there. But as you mentioned in the pandemic, 
The world looks completely different than we could have imagined not that long ago. Brady Dennis covers climate for The Post. Lena Mohammed produced this story. This report comes amid a summer of extreme weather, from record-breaking heat waves to floods to fires. The Dixie Fire in California continues to burn and is now the second largest fire in the state's history. Meanwhile, on the island of Evia in Greece, wildfires have been raging for the past week, wiping out homes and destroying entire villages. More than 2,000 people were forced to evacuate by boat, and there are stunning videos of people crammed into ferries, surrounded by fire and red skies. Our villages are destroyed. There is nothing left from our homes. Our properties, nothing, nothing. These fires were triggered by Greece's worst heat wave in 30 years. Wildfires have also been spreading in Turkey, where at least eight people have died. We'll be right back. On Sunday, the Tokyo Olympics came to a close. COVID cases in Tokyo are spiking. There have been controversies and protests, and yet there were also real moments of joy. I would call it bittersweet. That's the word that keeps coming to mind. Michelle Yehili is the post-Tokyo bureau chief. She's been covering these unusual Olympic Games, and she spoke to producer Emma Talkoff about what lessons we might be able to take away. Yesterday, I was at the closing ceremony watching all the athletes uh, who are still in Japan. Athletes had to leave within 48 hours after their competition so that they don't spread the virus or catch it. The athletes who had shown up to the closing ceremony were just a fraction of all the athletes who had come for the games. But they were there. They were being celebrated. They were dancing, jumping around, clapping, and really happy to be a part of it. And we were covering the event inside the stadium, which houses about 68,000 people in a normal time. But because it is not normal times, it was empty. So there was such a difference between what I was watching, the joy that I was watching from the athletes, and just the emptiness that I was feeling from inside. What was the scene like outside of the stadium for just like regular citizens of Tokyo? There were huge lines of people waiting to just take a selfie with the Olympic rings. I talked to a family who had waited over an hour just to get a picture with the rings because they were excited that the Olympics were here. And that's pretty much all they could do to actually celebrate and be a part of it. During the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony, I saw long lines of people gathered as close as possible to the stadium, which is across the street from it, just so they could see the fireworks coming out from top of the stadium and try to listen to some of the music from inside. And at the same time, there were protesters who were very much against the Olympics being held. So there was a juxtaposition of residents who were just hoping to get a a small glimpse of the ceremony, but also the residents who really didn't want any of this happening here. The public opinion leading up to the Olympics was very anti-Olympics. And then once the actual game started and Japan started winning a lot of medals and there was a lot of excitement around the Olympics just being held here, we saw public opinions shift quite a bit. People were starting to warm up to it. And then when the coronavirus cases started going up and set record levels last week, 
public opinion again started shifting. So it's been a real mixed bag, and that's why I think it's uh, it's been quite a complicated Olympic Games. So daily COVID cases in Tokyo have almost quadrupled since the start of the Games, right? Is there any sense that that's related to the Games themselves and that maybe hosting the Olympics during the pandemic was a mistake? So the evidence around the COVID spike here is a bit muddled. And so leading up to the Games, there was a huge fear that the Olympics could become this global super spreader event. But the Olympics bubble, for the most part, held. There were several hundred positive cases relating to the Olympics of of athletes, personnel, and journalists, and volunteers. But for the most part, those cases were isolated quickly if they happened within the bubble. Of course, about half the positive cases from within the bubble were of local contractors who were not tested as often as the athletes and who could actually move about within and outside the bubble. So it was a, you know, it was kind of a porous bubble in that sense. But outside, throughout Tokyo and in other parts of Japan, coronavirus has been rising. The Delta variant has been spreading really quickly. Vaccinations have been picking up, but not as quickly as a lot of people would like. Hospitals are running out of beds to the point where the prime minister last week asked residents to stay home if they're sick, but not severe. If they're not showing severe symptoms to just take care of themselves at home. And there's been a state of emergency declared throughout Tokyo. But the thing is, the public is really exhausted by the state of emergency. They're asking, how can it be an emergency when the majority of days in 2021 so far has had this declaration of state of emergency? So in terms of the view of public health officials, they really feel that there's been mixed messaging coming from the government because the government is asking people, don't celebrate, you know, don't stay out, watch the Olympics from home, just stay inside, just watch it on TV. But at the same time, they are messaging that Japan is open to the entire world to come and compete and, you know, celebrate from within the Olympic venues. And this mixed messaging, according to public health experts, um, has not helped. They believe that it's really undermined the government and the health officials' ability to communicate just how severe COVID still is here. Yeah, and I find this almost hard to believe, but we're actually less than six months away from the start of another Olympics, which is the Winter Olympics in Beijing. What lessons do you think are going to be drawn from the Tokyo Olympics, especially since it seems very clear that the pandemic is not going to be over in six months? Right. There's another Olympics right around the corner. I think there are lots of lessons that can be taken away from this. The organizers have already been talking about it uh, in terms of the Paris 2024 games, about how the summer games being run this time is actually going to shape the way that they plan the 2024 games. The Olympic committee structure is quite a big bureaucracy. It's not easy to just bend to quick decisions. And that was a big takeaway for the organizers. They had to bend as quickly as possible. They had to adapt. They had to come up with all of these rules quickly once they decided that the spectators would be banned and they had to come up with new ways that that crowds can interact with athletes virtually. So those takeaways about how they tried to create an environment that is COVID safe while still being engaging for fans around the world, we can expect that to take place again for Beijing. 
And I believe they're still trying to figure out the COVID requirements around the Beijing Olympics. But based on what the organizers have learned from Tokyo, I think they're taking away that the requirements were sufficient, but they probably need to have more enforcement around the requirements, both for the media and for the public who wants to try to watch it as much as possible. According to the organizers, those are some takeaways that they're going to try to apply moving forward for the games. So given all of these kind of mixed positives and negatives that we're talking about, do you think it's fair to call these games a success? I think only time will tell. I mean, the Olympic officials are saying that there is no medical or scientific proof that they contributed to the COVID rise outside of the bubble. That's really hard to actually prove one way or another. And it also depends how you measure success. If you measure success as an Olympic Games being held without becoming a global super spreader event, seems like it's on its way there. The last of the athletes are returning back home. Um, so far, we've not heard of major outbreaks in the countries that athletes have returned to already. And, you know, there were really beautiful, remarkable moments of joy, camaraderie, new sports that helped draw in younger viewers, younger players, like skateboarding, which was just a really cool sport to watch and was newly added this year, along with um, surfing and BMX. And we also saw a, a huge emphasis on important issues such as mental health come to the forefront, which I think really resonated with athletes and viewers alike, just given the fact that it's been a really hard year on all of us. And that is actually something that globally you can relate to as something that really resonates with viewers and athletes around the world. At the same time, it still remains pretty complicated. Even though the International Olympic Committee is going to walk away with the revenue, Tokyo is still footing the bill uh, with billions of dollars. It remains to be seen what the budget impact is going to be on Tokyo government, on the Japanese government as a result of the Olympics. Um, we also have Paralympics coming up in a couple weeks. So we might have to go through this all over again. So there's just a lot of um, mixed feelings when it comes to this Olympics. Michelle Yehi-Lee is the post-Tokyo bureau chief. Emma Talkoff produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.